Hi everyone, welcome to episode two of Books with Jen. You might be able to hear I have a very sexy cold at the moment, but don't worry, when I recorded the rest of this podcast, I wasn't ill at all, so you don't have to listen to me talking like this for very long at all. So in this episode of the podcast, firstly, before I kick off, if you're watching this slash listening to this on YouTube and you would like to download a copy of the audio so that you can take it out with you, listen to it on your commute and stuff like that, just head over to Jen campbell.co.uk forward slash podcast and you can download a copy of the audio file there. So in this month's podcast I've got two lovely people chatting to you today. The first one is Tracy Chevalier who is the author of Girl with a Pearl Earring amongst many other fantastic books. She's got three books coming out in the next 10 months or so. Um, She has got her new novel, At the Edge of the Orchard, coming out in March. She has a collection of its stories inspired by Jane Eyre, which she has been editing coming out in April. And then she's also part of the Hogarth Shakespeare series, um, which I've been talking about on my channel recently, which has books in it by Jeanette Winderson and Margaret Atwood and a whole host of other people. And each author is taking one Shakespeare play and retelling it in a novel. And Tracy is doing Othello. So she's going to be talking about that as well. So that's the first person that we're going to be talking to today. Go and make yourself a cup of tea and pull up a chair or get on with the dishes. I like doing dishes when I'm listening to podcasts. Dishes, walking the dog, all of that stuff. So whatever you're up to, enjoy. I hope you like this podcast and uh, I will speak to you guys later. I'm here with Tracy Chevalier in her lovely house with her angry cat apparently. (laughs) Oh, she's looking very happy at the moment. She does look very happy. But what's her name? She's a tortoise shell named Treacle, and uh, torties have a reputation. Whenever I take her to the vet, they all go, "Oh, here comes the tortie. Is she's gonna? Is she gonna act up?" And she, <laughs> she, she's really, really friendly until suddenly she's not. She'll just suddenly turn. So I, every visitor who comes in, going, "Oh, Kitty," I have to say. Watch yeah, out. Well, <laughs> well, she's looking like the queen at the moment, reclining yeah. on her red sofa. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm with Tracy. Tracy, you have three books coming out this year, don't you? No, when's books. your Hogarth Press one going That's out? in 2017. Okay, so you haven't okay. finished writing it yet. All right, Ooh. fair enough. <laughs> look on your face, you're like, shit, I have three? Oh, God. <laughs> okay, you have two with one, another one coming out very, very shortly. Yeah. So that that's a lot to be getting on with. I am a little bit overextended at the moment. Yeah. Well, the last time I saw you, I remember you said, Jen, if you were going to rewrite a Shakespeare play, which one would you write? Because you were still at that point of deciding. Choosing which one, yeah. yes. So you went for Othello in the end, right? Yes. What, which one did you choose? Would you have chosen? I think I said Macbeth at the time. Um, Joe Nesbo has chosen Macbeth. Yeah, that is, nice he's, he's yeah. going to be good at that. Yeah. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about all of them. I think the trick to doing these Shakespeare uh, novel is uh, a novel inspired by Shakespeare is that I don't want I don't want to replicate every single subplot because those plays are three hours long and really um, intensely kind of woven in subplot stuff. It's complicated, and I think I wanted the novel to be a little bit more straightforward. Some of the subplots are just kind of ludicrous anyway. Yeah. They're they're all based on coincidences and all kinds of stuff, and somehow you you suspend your disbelief on when you're watching a production, but not so much when you're when you're reading it. So I'm trying to simplify things a little bit. And I guess you don't need it in the same sense as Shakespeare felt he needed it for the play because it was the light relief, wasn't it? Because you're sitting there, as you, as you say, for three and a half hours. You don't sit down and read a novel all the way through, at least yeah. not all of the time. You can put it down, you can pick it back up. So if anything's a bit too intense, you can come back to it later. 
you don't have to sit there and be faced with it until it's the end. It's true. But, you know, the funny thing about that is um, I sometimes think that my favorite books have been when, I, been when I've been sick in bed, like I'm, I've got the flu and I have to stay in bed for a couple of days and I just read for hours. So I did that with Fingersmith, uh, yeah, Sarah Waters, and Philip Pullman, Northern Lights, and then I think mm-hmm. I went right on to The Subtle Knife. And I think that I loved them so much in part because I had the perfect reading opportunity to, to expand into. And there are times when I read books um, and I kind of end up chopping up the reading experience. Like I can only read, uh, I have no time during the day. So I read when I get into bed and it's late and I only read for 10 minutes and then I fall asleep. So it takes me a few weeks to read something that really should go quite quickly. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's all chopped up and I sort of think, yeah, I know I should like this. I can feel that it's a good book, but I'm not actually enjoying the experience. And that, that happened to me really recently with The Loney, which won the Costa First Book Award yeah. and got such great reviews. And I thought, oh, this sounds so amazing. And I really wanted to like it, but I think I didn't give the right time to it. Well, it's like I sometimes feel that with people, like at the bookshop, some people would come in and I have a really nice interaction with them for five or 10 minutes mm. and on several different occasions. And that's very pleasant. But, you know, when you meet someone, you're like, I know if we sat down and had lunch, we would have amazing conversations and we yeah. would really get to grips with each other. Yeah, but it can also work the opposite way. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody you really like for a couple of minutes when you see them, when you're you're showing them a book or something. And then if you actually had lunch with them, you would have nothing to say. Yeah. And be like that, too. That's true. That is true. So, um, so that is one of the books that you've got coming out. The, f- the first one that's coming out is your new novel, and that's At the Edge of the Orchard. How did it originate? What was the idea that sparked it? Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, the idea, uh, the book is set in 19th century Ohio and California, and it's, um, the reason it's set in Ohio is because my last book was, The Last Runaway, also set in 19th century Ohio. And when I was doing research for that book, I read a part of a book by Michael Pollan called The Botany of Desire. And it's it's a, a nonfiction book about humans' relationships to different plants. So there, it's, it's divided into four sections. There's apples, tulips, potatoes, and marijuana. And it's really interesting. Um, Save and the, best or less. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, apples, uh, the apple section is primarily about this uh, folk hero, American folk hero called Johnny Appleseed who was known to, um, he would go through 19th century Ohio selling and giving away apple trees and apple seeds to plant, to make orchards because apples, apples are great things. You know, you should, everyone should eat them all the time. That was the myth anyway. Mm. And Michael Pollan kind of debunked the myth in this, in this section. And I read the section cause I was looking for details about 19th century Ohio life, but I became fascinated by, uh, this idea that actually Johnny Appleseed um, was was a, a Swedenborgian, which is this very strange Christian sect who uh, was kind of, uh, William Blake dabbled in it too, is this very odd sect. He, um, he went barefoot, he wore a tin pot for a hat, that's true, coffee sack for clothes, and, uh, but he was also a shrewd businessman. And he would anticipate where settlers were gonna settle in Ohio, go there a few years before, plant a nursery of trees, apple trees, and then sell them when the settlers came, because if you settled in Ohio, you were um, by law had to pu- to publish. <laughs> you had to plant an orchard <laughs> of fifty trees, providing the you know the, yeah. the he was the gap in the market. 
Um, like the old age stock market. Where are people going to move to? Yeah, What's yeah. going to be fashionable? Exactly. Let's get in there first. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but what pollen goes into, Michael Pollen goes into, is the fact that apple trees, botanically, if you plant a, an apple seed from a, an apple you've eaten, and it grows up, nine times out of ten, the, the, the fruit on that tree will be sour, not sweet. If you want to get a sweet apple tree, you really have to graft. You mm-hmm. take a branch from the sweet tree, and then you graft it onto another tree, and it, it produces sweet apples. Otherwise, your apples are mostly sour. So Johnny Appleseed was not peddling healthy eating. He was actually peddling alcohol. Because most of the sour apples are made into cider and applejack, which is a kind of apple brandy. And when I read this, I thought, God, this is fascinating how his myth got kind of completely changed. And then I had this vision of a settler, a pioneer couple, a husband and wife who are arguing over apple trees. And one of them wants sweet apples and one wants sour and um, to drink her life away. Uh, because it's such a hard life. And uh, that vision stayed in my head, and I thought, that's my next book. So that's how the idea came. And I knew I wanted to write a book about trees as well. So uh, the apple trees are half of the book. And then the other half of the book, there's a in, in, in Ohio is this family called the Goodenoughs, who live in the Black Swamp in the 1830s, grow apple trees, have the, the husband and wife argue ferociously over it. Um, and then it moves 20 years later to the 1850s, following their son, one of their sons, Robert Goodenough. In California, he's there for the gold rush. And um, he discovers he, he discovers that these things exist called redwoods and giant sequoias. And it's about his relationship to trees and the trauma of his past, because it all ends pretty badly. And uh, he ends up trying to find solace among trees. And it's in a way about the American dream, moving, moving west, you know, running away from your problems, trying to find something better, and then what happens when you actually hit the ocean, the Pacific? You can't go further west, so what, you have to turn around and face your problems. That sounds really beautiful. I think and those redwood trees, I mean, how long do they live for? It's thousands, thousands of years. Thousands of years. Yeah, so yeah. I guess what mixed up in that is facing your own mortality and what you can do in that time, and these things are so sturdy and there. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Can I ask how you decided to get in, well, decided to get into, that's a really silly question, how you um, found yourself writing historical fiction to begin with? Um, And you're actually, I think, I think that your books are the first books for grown-ups I ever read. I remember going on... Really? Yeah, I think so. I remember going on holiday... Gosh, you're really young, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) And on holiday to St. Ives when I was younger, and... I hadn't taken enough books with me, but uh, the place we were staying in had this bookshelf. Um, and, and what was on it? The Girl with Pearl Anything else? Lady and the Unicorn. No, no. Uh, not me. Were there like James Patterson? And... I don't remember what else was on it because those were the books that I read. Those are the books that I picked up uh, and went to the beach as a grumpy teenager, firmly ignoring my family, sitting in this little wind-shielded um, place reading my book. And not talking to anybody. <laughs> I'm uh, so glad I could be there for you. Thank to you so much. That that uh, sort of rebellion from your family. Yeah, it was. It was I my never thought of reading as a rebellious act, but I'm really glad that uh, that I was there. <laughs> thank you. You kept me company on the Cornish coast. So uh, yeah, how did you get into writing historical fiction? Well, I like the correction you made to yourself was how did you um how did you choose it and then yeah. actually how did you fall it sort of fall I did fall into yeah. it I I never um I was never one of those 
students who really relished history. Um, and I only became sort of interested in history in general. And oddly enough, in my early 30s, I uh, started looking into my family history. So you start with this, um, uh, you know, history getting into it in a very personal way, and then it kind of expanded out. But my first novel, The Virgin Blue, was, was going to be contemporary. Is it going to be about this woman, an American woman who moves to France and ends up researching her family background, her family mm -hmm. history, uh, which is what the Chevaliers, where, where the Chevaliers originally came from via Switzerland. And, um, and uh, so I thought, oh, well, as I was writing, I thought, well, maybe I should... Um, Sorry, our cat, <laughs> the cat's walking all over us. Um, maybe I should uh, have some bits of of the actual family she's researching. So the the book is divided into two sections: a contemporary section, and then there what we're going to be these little tiny bits of sixteenth century French Huguenot history. And um, the first time I started writing that stuff. Uh, I, I think the scene was like a peasant family coming in from the fields to eat supper. And I realized, you know, at the moment in the first paragraph, I thought, what are they sitting on? Is it chairs? Is it stools? Is it benches? Table? I mean, do they have, did they have forks, knives and forks back then? Or did they eat with their hands? What were they eating? What time would they be eating? What was the light going to be like? Like, did they have lanterns or candles or hey, maybe they just went to bed when it got dark. So I didn't know any of that. I was like a baby. Um, yeah. And I thought, i got to go off and research all this stuff, even for this little scene. And then I started researching it, and then I realized I kind of liked it. Yeah. And I think in a, in a kind of the most prosaic answer to this question is that I write about the past because it takes me away from myself. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really irritated me about the response to The Virgin Blue by various people was, Oh, Tracy's is so autobiographical. And I felt like saying, no, it isn't. I'm not her. I'm not. But of course, you sort of go, oh, woman similar age to you, French family background, American in Europe. I mean, of course. And I, But it was more than that. I think that my voice, my actual voice sounded like her actual voice and, mm. in, the, in the book. And, and I realized I didn't like that. I didn't like having it be about me. I didn't want it to be about me. I, uh, but nobody asked me about... Are you like Isabel and the a French peasant? So I thought, hey, if I write more historical, then I don't get this this sort of autobiographical question. Nobody yeah. ever asks me if I'm like Girl with the Pearl Earring, because mm -hmm. I'm not. Or I, you know, it, the, though having said that, I think all writing is auto autobiographical in the end. Yeah. Because it's about your interests and stuff, but but it's 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 much better disguised. You know, I have I can maintain my privacy in that way. Um, and also, I just found that the research really threw out stories that I wouldn't have thought of and details I wouldn't have thought of. So um, ever since, it's been all historical. And when the Girl with Pearly Ring really took off, how, how, how was that? And is it weird? And is it one of those things that now people ask you about that book all the time? You're like, I've written other books. Please stop asking me about that book. Uh, but at the same time, you're like, I know I have to respect that book and I love that book. I wrote it. But can we talk about something else now? <laughs> well, you know, I'm really lucky because that book is actually about something that I still love, which yeah. is Vermeer paintings. Yeah. I could talk about Vermeer all the time. I still have things to say about him. I'm still curious. I still look at that painting all the time and, and his other paintings. So luckily, uh, I think if it had been a, a novel that was about 
me or about, you know, just something that wasn't quite as appealing a subject, I would be much more um, eh about it. Yeah. But the question doesn't bother me because um, I still... I still, I still love those paintings. I still love that painting. I still think it's mysterious and that the book has not really answered the question. The big question to me is, is she happy or sad yeah. in that painting? And you can't really tell no. ever. Although I have had my moments where I thought, what is the big fuss about? Of course she seems, she's probably his daughter. I'm sure she's happy. And, um, but actually most of the time I, I just think, no, I just don't know. And um, and I think that's the power of the painting is that I haven't answered the question even in the whole novel. Yeah. Um, so luckily, your question is not offensive or like, <laughs> eh. I just think, oh, yeah, I, it's it's funny about that book. I um, it, it was very odd when it took off um, because it's not obvious subject matter mm. like that you think is going to be a bestseller. If you said... If I said to you, uh, oh yeah, this this book about a Dutch painter and he paints this painting of this girl. It's not that. There's nothing very sexy about that, not seemingly. Mm. And um, and so it, it was uh, it was a real surprise to me that it did so well. And I haven't actually reread it because I can't bear to reread my own writing. I only read the bits that I read for events. And yeah. uh, so I don't really know whether it still hangs together and stuff. But it's it seemed to... Um, I don't know, it seemed to touch a chord, and I think if, if the painting hadn't existed, if it weren't a real painting, then it definitely wouldn't have done very well. You think? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's all about the power of that painting. So I, um, I can only take a little credit for it. I think that Vermeer actually takes a lot more credit than I do. I think do. you're doing and, yourself a bit well, of a disservice. Well, you know, I know that you were going to say that, and I <laughs> wish I could t- say it in a better way, but I just um, I think that the, the, the power of the book is that it goes hand in hand with the painting. Mm. And it's really hard to unpick where the power of one is and where the power of the other is. So maybe we can compromise by just saying they are, you know, intertwined. Yeah. And and the success of the book is part and parcel of the, the, the success of the painting, too. And have you found that with your writing, obviously you've gone and researched all these things. Is it sparked from a love of something historical like that painting? Or have you found yourself becoming really interested in something because of the amount that you've researched it? So, for instance, I know that you're really big into quilting. Quilting, quilting, quilting yes. That's it, yes. Um, and was that something you were really interested in before you started researching that? Or No. no? That's the thing, is that um, I'll, something will spark my interest. So the last novel I wrote, The Last Runaway, mm. I was really interested in the Underground Railroad, which was this movement in the States to help runaway slaves escape to freedom in the North. And I knew I wanted to write about that. I set it in Ohio, uh, but I, I had an English uh, heroine who comes over, emigrates to Ohio. And at the time, I thought, I need to, I want to have her do something with her hands, like something that she does at night that is not just work, but is also pleasure too or something that's more creative and what did women do at that time so I was looking into it and quilting was the obvious response Mm -hmm. and I had no feelings about quilting one way or the other before I started researching in fact I probably had negative feelings because I tended to associate quilts with like you go to a village hall fete yeah uh like a women's institute thing where or, or a jumble sale and there's all these stuff and there are these kind of uh, like a little baby quilt that has ABC blocks uh, quilted onto it. And there's a couple of ducks and it's kind of a yellow and green. Can you imagine this? Yes. I can. Yes. 
and nobody buys it. Yeah. It's so hideous. That's what I thought a quilt was. And um, when I started researching it, I discovered that quilts are incredibly varied and beautiful and complicated and they have they, they have the imprint of the maker in them, not only in what she has, you know, the colors she's chosen, the pattern she's chosen, the stitching she does, but also she literally is holding this hour after hour, week after week. Her skin is in there. She pricks her fingers. You get blood on it. It's very, it's like, it's very personal. Mm. And uh, especially quilts back then were often made with scraps of fabric left over from your daily life. So you'd have some of your dress in there and your apron and your, you know, your father's trousers and all sorts of things. So there's a, there's a kind of weaving of the family history into the quilts. And um, I also thought, well, if I'm going to write about somebody quilting, I need to do it myself. So I took a quilting class and I discovered I really enjoyed doing it. I'm not very good, but I like the, the challenge of doing something that's nonverbal yeah. That's visual. I, I never, I can't paint, I can't draw, but I, I really have a lot of fun making this thing that is both beautiful and also practical because you put it on the bed afterwards. Mm -hmm. So um, those sort of things uh, come to me when I've already chosen a period of time or something. And there are other, there are other things that I've really got into, like fossil hunting when I wrote Remarkable Creatures a couple books back. It's about the fossil hunter Marianning down in Lyme Regis. In the 19th century and I had never I had walked on the beach before and maybe picked up the odd bellum night or ammonite but for this book I really had to get heavily into fossil hunting and I found I really loved doing it your other book that is yes. coming out <laughs> yeah the month after this yeah. one right I'm really excited about this I'm really excited to copy it it's called reader I married him stories inspired by Jane Eyre yeah. This really makes me happy. Guys, I'm going to be hosting a read-along of Jane Eyre beginning of April. Are you? I am. Because I really want to rip it to shreds. People talk about it being like the love story. It's like always reducing things, you know, when people talk about Romeo mm. and Juliet. And they're like, oh, the love. And I'm like, well, the 13-year-old girl. And the lust. And the yeah. death. Let's talk yeah. about all of that. So I really love Jane Eyre and looking at Bertha in, in, in Jane Eyre and how... The reading of Bertha as the feral feminist side of Jane that has to die so that she can be with Rochester. Like, she's her other self, separated and other and locked up in a room, just like she was at the beginning of the book when her aunt locks her in this room and she goes, right. feels like she's going mad. So feminist I love this propaganda one. here. Oh, so much. <laughs> so much feminist propaganda. And then at the end, when, well, well I guess it was spoilers if you haven't read Jane, but. Uh, at the end, when she marries Rochester, but only when he's been, well, kind of physically destroyed a bit, so yeah. that she's in the position of power. But yeah. then there's that suggestion at the end that his sight is going to come back and he is going to be the stronger one again. Uh, I find it's it's so complex. I mean, there are lots of problems with it, and the whole bit with um, St. John and stuff is a bit... I don't know. Too too many coincidences there. Oh, yes. I could have done without them being related. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell you, my favorite bit of Jane Eyre is, um, it used to be the passion. Mm. And I still think that Jane and Rochester are wonderful flirting scenes. Yeah. Some brilliant flirting going on. But my favorite bit is actually when she flees Rochester when she dis discovers about Bertha. And she basically just gets on a stagecoach and goes as far as she can until her money runs out. And they let her out at this crossroads in the middle of nowhere. 
and she walks to this tiny village and starts asking if um, she has no money. She asks, is, is there any jobs as a teacher or governess? And they all go, you know, not in a village like this. Are you kidding? And she starts looking longingly at the buns in the bakery window. And and then she realizes she has no money. She, she doesn't know what to do. And she ends up sleeping rough for a yeah. few nights. And it was written. And each day she comes back into the village and is wandering around. And they're, she, they're more and more suspicious of her because she's getting more bedraggled and is clearly on you know, on or down, you know, is not doing well. And I um, thought it was so realistically uh, created, even though I know now Charlotte Bronte never did sleep out rough, but boy, she got it down, Pat. And it's yeah. that idea that you can, this is about as low as you can go. Um, you reach, you really bottom out. And I think all of us float along in the, in the construct of our world. And she really describes well what it's like psychically when you bottom out. Is your story related to that part of the um, book? Not in the slightest. No. Okay, I should explain this Yeah, explain it. Reader I Married Him is a a collection of short stories by 21 contemporary women writers from all over the place, mostly UK and American, but a sprinkling of Irish, a Zambian writer named Namwali Serpel. We've also got people like Eva Donoghue, Evie Wilde, Lionel Shriver, like so many. Audrey Niffenegger. Yeah. They've all taken the line and written a story inspired by it. So some of them um, have taken the Jane Eyre story and rewritten it. I think you'll enjoy that because there's a... um, Francine Prose has written about the marriage after they've gotten married, what it's like. And and, and indeed, Rochester regaining his sight and and becoming more dominant. What Mm -hmm. what happens? Um, uh, Helen Dunmore has written from the point of view of Grace Poole's looking after Bertha. And so, and Jane Eyre gets a really rough ride in that. Uh, and um, Sally Vickers tells this, retells the story um, from Rochester's point of view. And it's a lot more about his, uh, his first wife. So um, there are some, and like Audrey Niffenegger has set the book, uh, the story in a, a kind of contemporary war-torn country. And it's more about Jane and Helen Burns and um, at, the, at the school. Um, and then others have just taken the idea of marriage in general and written stories about it. So there are various weddings in here. There are breakups. There are all sorts of things. And uh, I, I had such a great time putting it together. It was really, um, really wonderful uh, to get such a varied bunch of writers to, to work on that phrase. How was the editing process for you, working out which stories should go where? And because that's your first time working with fiction in that way. Yeah, yeah. That was the most fun, actually. I um, once I got the stories in and had edited them um, with the writers, uh, I laid them all out on the floor, physically laid them out on the floor, and thought, okay, which uh, first I had to choose a story I thought would would work well at the beginning, and one at the end, and then I kind of um, put them all in between and the stories that were that are specifically about Jane Eyre I sprinkled throughout rather than clumping them together so I kind of anchored those I chose the first story I chose the last story Um, like the first story starts with a wedding and the last story starts ends with a proposal Mm -hmm. and so I and then I just sort of uh, worked out the the character the tone of each story and how they so if there were two stories that had a similar tone, I tended to separate them or put them together. It all depends on how you, how you want to work it. And 
I had so much fun with that mm-hmm. element of it. And then I wrote a foreword and I, I wrote a story too because I wasn't going to at first. And then some of the other writers who I know said, what? <laughs> Tracy, you can't, you can't ask us to write something and then not write it yourself. And I was like, okay, okay. So, so what I, is yours about? Mine is, uh, is set a, a post of an, a, a 1980s rave and uh, a bunch of young people are out in the countryside and um, some of them, most of them are just too hungover and are sitting in a pub. And this um, a young man, young woman go off for a walk and she's reading Jane Eyre. And he's trying to impress her, and it's um, and he mixes up his Brontes. That's all I'm gonna say. So it's quite light. I think um, some of them stories are quite kind of woof. Some of them are funny, and I just because uh, I wrote mine very last, I thought I think I just want one more slightly lighter take, and not not have it be the Jane Eyre story, but have it be about how we treat Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte in our like in our cultural landscape. Don't you think this is literary quilting? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> and the, I love that the cover has a pomegranate mm-hmm. that's been cut in half, and the pomegranate happens to be a heart shape. So it's a really striking cover. It's going it to absolutely leap off the shelf when you see it. I love that because at the top it's got that the cut open there that kind of looks like a crown, and then this heart that almost looks diseased, doesn't it? Because yeah, it's yeah, very beautiful, very red. But there's also this, you know, it's all the pomegranate seeds looking almost like a pulsating yeah. heart you know, grotesque heart inside. So it's very, um, it, it's, uh, it's quite, quite powerful, I think. And that's out in April. Yeah, April 7th. Amazing. So thank you very much, Tracy. Sure. For... Oh, it's yeah, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, We're so professional We are here. so professional. We've just been chatting. Sorry. We got distracted and forgot you guys were still here. We've cut out a lot of that we chat. We have. Though. Also, so... the bit where the cat got sick, we cut that out too. <laughs> Oh dear. So yeah, go and check out Tracy's new books. The Edge of the Orchard is out in March and then Reader I Married Him is out in April and her retelling of Othello will be out next year. Do you have a title for that one yet? Probably Black Boy. Black Boy. Okay, excellent. So go and check all of those out Um, and yeah, we'll go on to the next section of the podcast now. Thanks very much, Tracy. Thank Thank you, Jen. So that was lovely Tracy Chevalier. Now the next part of the podcast is a very short interview with Mike McMinn who runs the Rialto. Now if you watch my YouTube channel, you'll know that I have a massive soft spot for the Rialto. Um, They publish a poetry journal three times a year and they have this great mix of really new poets and well-established poets. The actual copy of the magazine as well as the material that's in it is of such high quality. The covers are gorgeous. Everything about it is absolutely beautiful. And as I said, it's published three times a year. You can either buy individual copies of the magazine on their website or you can subscribe to their magazine and they'll post out the issues as they come out and they post worldwide. So anywhere, anywhere you happen to be. Um, They were established in 1984 um, and they set out to be deliberately eclectic and to promote what one of the founders called a republic of poetry. And the first issue that they published had poems in it by Margaret Atwood and as well as four poems by a very unknown Caroline Duffy at that point as well. And each issue features the best new poems, a lively editorial, a letters page and news from the poetry world as well. And they also publish bridge pamphlets. Now bridge pamphlets are, well pamphlets themselves are bridges I suppose, which is why they're called this. Um, And it's to bridge the gap between poets who are being published in literary journals and a first full length collection. So they published my poetry pamphlet, The Hungry Ghost Festival, which is available on their website and also on my website as well but I highly recommend that you guys go and check them out this is not an advert I just love them very much and I just really would like to give them a shout out because 
they do absolutely wonderful work so head over after you've listened to this head over to www.therialto.co.uk and have a look i am gonna go and hand you guys over to past me who was talking to mike and i will speak to you guys in a bit hey guys i am here with uh, mike mcmin who runs the rialto which is a poached journal and what are probably actually my favorite actually but i am biased because they do publish me you know we do yeah so mike how did you set up the rialto and when oh by the way we're in a cafe so you've got some ambience here guys yeah we're in busy london yeah Um, busy london uh, (laughs) the center of the universe and all that which is not the center of the rialto though right no the center of the rialto's universe is um a small town sort of about 10 miles north of norwich Rialto began in Norwich um, in 1984. The first issue was 1984, but I think it took us probably towards a year to get it set up because to begin with, there had absolutely no money. We did the kind of things you did in those days, like um, having jumble sales and um, doing gigs, hiring a band to do a fundraising gig and things like that. And we also had someone who said, if you can get poems, then I'll pay for the printer's bill for the first issue, which was a very generous offer. That's very nice. Who's and that? Um, the person still wishes to remain anonymous. Ooh. So you published Carolyn Duffy in the first 1984, issue. yes. That's pretty impressive. You were one people of the first like people to publish her, right? She's, she seems to think so, yes. I thought she was already quite well known, but I don't think she was. So you can claim Carolyn Duffy's success? We can claim we a little bit. <laughs> I, I suppose it was it, it was a, a process of discovery. People say, "What advice would you give?" And we would say, well, "Read lots of poetry." Mm-hmm. And now and again, people would say, "Well, I don't want to do that because I don't want to influence to, my style, yeah. style to be influenced." Uh, it's like unless you've read the whole catalogue of poetry in most of the languages of the planet. I mean, you don't have to read them in the original. Um, Urdu or whatever, you, you can at least read them in translation. You need to try. And everybody is capable of writing at least one bloody good poem. I'm sure yes, of that. I agree. I know that because, I mean, there, there are people that have been sending things for years and years and years, and you kind of like, I'm, 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 I'm very patient and, I'm, and I kind of, and I care about it. And you can see that people are kind of moving and developing and changing. And they, they will get there one day. And, most of them, in fact, do. Well, I remember when I submitted to you for the first time, which I think was about eight years ago, you sent a letter back saying, I'm not publishing these, but please keep writing. Yes. And that was really encouraging. How many submissions does Rialto get these days? Um, well, I, I don't know. We've just started taking work by um, submittable. I keep yes. calling it submissible, but it <laughs> is submittable. Yeah. And in the first... We've been doing it since uh, December. Where are we now? Middle of February. Um, I think we're well over 400 poets that have sent stuff since we started. And if, if you think that many of those are sending six poems, so yeah, that's 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 quite a lot of poems to read. And how many go into each issue? Only about 50. So it's about 150 poem, actual poems a year that we publish. Yeah out of many thousands that arrive. I know that it's kind of sacrilegious because I think a lot of people think that you can only write poetry when it's matters of really high emotional import that you're dealing with, you know, birth and death and stuff like that. Yeah. But, and it's not, you're not supposed to be having fun at those moments in your life. But 
a very important element of poetry is actually the, the just the, the separate pure creativity of, of just putting the words in different orders and seeing how they come out mm. and no, it's not actually detachment it's it's looking at the experience and I don't know it's like you know you want to make you want to make you've got a lump of gold so what are you going to do it you're going to wear it as a lump or are you going to make it into something uh, and it, it's more it's more interesting to shape stuff mm -hmm. I think so there I think that the the making of poetry but I'm mean, not talking about being really self-conscious and remembering to put in lots of irony and stuff like that but kind of hammering it into something so that it actually does the best for you that it can do. Yeah, and that's the thing as well, isn't it? If you're comparing a lump of block to a lump of the same words and you give it to lots of different people and put them in separate rooms with a hammer, they're yes. all going to make completely different things they will. even though they're using the same words. Yes, exactly. It's like it's like your poem about the, the people in the kitchen that's oh, in, yeah, in yeah. your thing. My mum still thinks that's me, you know. She's waiting for me to have a confessional about me like having sex in her kitchen when she was out. And I was like, no, mum, it's, it's not real. It's a poem. She refuses to believe me. But, it's, it, 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 but the, the, the great thing about it is that it feels as if it's, I, it's you. Yeah. Right? And it, it's like, it's so well written. And it's, it's, and it's, and you think, well, if you can write that, do that with words, you can actually do anything you want. Yeah. So that was the lovely Mike Mitman there. And as I said before, you can head over to therialto.co.uk to find out much more about their magazine. I think they're brilliant. Um, so that is the end of this podcast. But I thought before I go, I would read a quick poem for you guys because Mike was talking there about the poem I wrote about a kitchen and people having sex in the kitchen. And maybe I thought it would be a bit weird to not explain that a bit further because that just sounds very odd out of context. So I'm going to insert a recording to finish off here of me reading my poem Kitchen, which uh, is the first poem in my collection, Hungry Ghost Festival, and was published in the Rialto. Um, so yeah, I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode of Books with Jen. As always, please do leave me some feedback. If you have ideas or future things you would like to see in a podcast, you can email me at jenvcampbell at gmail.com. You can check out my bookish videos over at youtube.com forward slash jenvcampbell. And you can find me over on Twitter at Aeroplane Girl. I will see you guys next month when I have lots of rather exciting things lined up. In the meantime, I hope you read lots of excellent books and I'll speak to you very soon. Lots of bookish love. Bye. Kitchen. What would you do if I died right now, here, you asked, your hand still resting on my thigh, your eyes focused on the ceiling, on the splash of curry sauce to the left of the light which doesn't work. We could have been in a field a wooden spoon dug into my back. I thought it funny. Let's not talk of death where food is prepared, I said. You turned away, stood up and opened the fridge. The light shone past you, an outline of you, your feet tapping on the floor. Your mother would be home soon, to her yellow and white check tea towels and a hand-painted bread bin and a naked daughter standing like Jesus in front of the refrigerator. I grabbed your foot. Come on, your nipples will freeze and you'll be chronogenically frozen. There was a laugh somewhere under your hair as you toppled backwards onto the floor and cupped my face. So, if I died, right here, now, you said, you'd freeze me. Your eyes were grey, round, you were swimming and I didn't know what you wanted me to do. I'd keep you, I said, I'd keep you right here.
dead, you grinned, where food is prepared. Well, then I'd eat you, I said, and you stared so deep, I drowned in a kitchen that wasn't there. I'd swallow down all the evidence of you. I grabbed your hand. We heard a key turn in a front door somewhere by the shore. I'd like that, you said, and then kissed me.